Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. I know you all want to have that name. Uh, he argues that, that love alone is credible. That is, the church is seen as most compelling when it is a poor servant church rather than a triumphant or a bombastic one. And love, in the example of Christ, is sacrificial. Even when our truth claims are rejected, the watching world will see the church as credible by the love that it embodies. I, I say that because I want to look this morning at Isaiah chapter 1. And here, the Lord is coming to this 8th century B.C. church, a, a church, Israel, the nation, uh, in the time of prosperity, is anything but embodying love. And, and God comes to this church and is exhorting them to be a people who uh, reflect the very heart of God, especially when it comes to the vulnerable, the poor, those who bear the image of the Lord. So with that in mind, Isaiah chapter 1, the first 20 verses. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I've reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land, it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, here he's not talking to Sodom literally, but he's using those names for Israel. Give ear, uh, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I, I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus far in the reading, this is the word of the Lord. Father, as we open this word today, we pray that you would open our hearts. Uh, For Lord, we, we see the dangers of being a people who are merely religious on the outside, uh, but inwardly our our hearts are far from you. And and Lord, we would not be those people. We we desire an authenticity of heart, a genuineness. We desire uh, a heart that is captivated by you, by the vision of life which you have given to us, We are captivated by justice and righteousness and the need for those in the world in which you have placed us. So Lord, be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, uh, inhabit every uh, person made in your image here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So being out on sabbatical for... uh, few months this summer. A lot of things happened in the world uh, while I was gone. Uh, One of the things that happened in the U.S. during that time was the Dobbs decision, which uh, reversed the ruling of the 1973 Roe decision. Uh, I was touched by uh, a prayer that my friend, Scotty Smith, some of you will see his prayers on the uh, Gospel Coalition blog, offered the day after that Dobbs decision, and I'll read it for you here. Heavenly Father, I have so many intense feelings coursing through my heart and bones this morning. I feel deep gratitude for the reversal of the Roe decision. You're in the womb, image bearers, fully human, very much real children are the greatest benefactors of this Supreme Court's decision. I also feel tremendous sadness about the intense divide in our country. So many of us see this and other issues so differently. That's nothing new, it's just gotten so much more obvious, ugly, and threatening. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy on us. What I don't feel is a spirit of gloating, as though my lacrosse, my basketball, or soccer team just won a heated contest. Abortion and the many complex issues surrounding it has never been a game to win or to lose. Again, Father, have mercy on us. 
I do feel sober and realistic and hopeful about the huge gospel work in front of us. We who have prayed and worked and sacrificed for this decision have way more praying in the Spirit, labors of love, and sacrificial generosity that are now knocking at our front doors. Now isn't the time to buy a bag of popcorn to sit down and watch for the next Supreme Court decision, but it's a time for faith expressing itself in love and grace being revealed through servanthood. The call to a lifestyle of doing good, seeking justice, correcting injustice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with you just got ramped up big time. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Help us so very. Amen. I think you sense the... Uh, the humility that this brother leads us in prayer with this, and, and also the wisdom. I would affirm with him that this is a, a good decision. Uh, I, I appreciate also the words of Jake Medor writing in an article. This is actually an article that was a couple of years old, uh, talking about the possibility of, of Roe being overturned. He says, to achieve such a political victory is a great good for the simple reason that civil law ought to agree with the moral law. Unjust laws, as Augustine and MLK tell us, are, are no laws at all. And so a political victory that sees our nation's civil laws move nearer to the revealed truth of the moral law is a real victory and ought to be celebrated as such. And yet, he goes on to say, much in the same vein as Scotty, uh, the goal of the pro-life movement is not simply that Roe is overturned, but that ours would be a society that is friendly to life. As long as our laws allow for the killing of the unborn, we cannot claim to be such a society, but the erasure of such laws will not, in and of itself, absolve us of the charge of being a society that is deeply inhumane and hostile to life. Justice is not appeased simply through the changing of civil law. It is appeased when we render to each what they are due. And this, of course, is what God has been saying to his people uh, from the very creation of the world. God has been saying that every single person uh, that is created, uh, no matter how they bear it, no matter what, uh, what is marring it, every single person is created in the image uh, of a holy and a, a righteous God, every single person bears that and is deserving of worth, whether they are prenatal or postnatal, uh, however they have uh, marred that image through guilt or through the pollution of sin, we all are deserving of being treated uh, as image bearers of God and treating every single person that we meet as an image bearer of God. Uh, John Calvin and in his uh, institutes 
has a very strong statement on this, and I shared a little bit of it with you in the Friday letter, if you are careful readers of this. This is from book three, uh, chapter seven, section six, uh, where Calvin says this, and he's talking about being generous to folks. He says, scripture helps us in the best way when it teaches that we are not to consider that men merit of themselves. So the issue isn't what, what do you deserve in and of themselves, but we are to look upon the image of God in all men to whom we owe all honor and love. Whatever man you meet who needs your aids, you have no reason to refuse him. And then he goes on and he gives several of these reasons. Say he is a stranger. Say they are contemptible. Say you owe nothing for any service of his. Say he does not deserve even your least effort. But Calvin answers each of these, but the image of God. He'll go so far as to say, but the image of God which recommends him to you is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. You see how big this idea is, the image of God that another uh, created being bears it is so worthy. Uh, say he has provoked you by unjust acts and, and curses. Not even this is a just reason why you should cease to embrace him in love and to perform the duties of love on his behalf. You will say he's deserved something far different of me. Yet what has the Lord deserved? We remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look on the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. These are challenging ideas. Uh, and it has been this way from the creation of the world. When God made us, he made us in his image. We're different than the animals. We're different than uh, the birds and the bees and the trees uh, and the flowers. As beautiful as all of those things are, as lovely as creation is, nothing can compare to the image of God that has been placed in humans. And God is calling us to cultivate, uh, to nurture a, a love for that image in every facet that we see it in this world. And this is the, the struggle that uh, the church has had, God's people have had throughout their existence. We see it here in Isaiah 1. Three sort of stops for you this, way, uh, this morning, all concerning a way, no way to live, a way out of crisis, and a way forward. Here Isaiah, along with his contemporaries Micah and Hosea and Amos, all of these 8th century prophets, you can see many of these same themes in their books, uh, he is coming to a people that have lost that vision of the image of God uh, in humanity. Uh, they have become obsessed in their prosperity. Uh, this is a prosperous time. The time of King Uzziah is a time when the borders of Israel uh, were expanded. You can see a, a lot of the prophecy goes 
to those who are lying abound on couches inlaid with ivory. They've got well-fatted calves. They've got everything that they've got, rivers of oil, all of these things that they are bringing before the Lord, all this wealth. But they are trampling on, they are grinding the face of the poor, Isaiah 3, 15. They are grinding the face of the poor into the dust. And that's indeed the problem here that God is calling for correction. We memorize this verse, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Uh, Because, look at verse 23, if you have your Bibles open, I know we didn't read it this morning, your princes are rebels. Uh, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and they run after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. The widow's cause does not come to them. What do you mean by crushing my people? God says through Isaiah in 3.15, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the failure of the people of God. It's a failure to recognize, to love, to care for the image of God that he has placed in man. Furthermore, uh, this is an affront to to God's own heart because God is the one who, who draws close to the poor. God is the one who identifies with the fatherless and the weak. We saw that in our call to worship this morning from Psalm 68, uh, where we see the father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. He settles the solitary in a home. He leads the prisoners out to prosperity. That is who God is. And and he tells us, like, this is what it means to know him. When through the prophet Jeremiah, he's speaking uh, speaking to one of the kings of Israel. He says, do you think that you are a king because you compete in cedar? Because you have all of this, this wealth and this opulence? Did not your father eat, drink, and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me? If we really want to to know God, it's not knowing about him. It's not studying all the systematic theology, even memorizing all of the scripture, uh, apart from having a heart that beats after the same things that God's heart Beats after. James, New Testament testimony, says something very similar. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not one, bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. But two, religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Fa- before God the Father is this: visit the orphans and widows in their afflictions. Three, keep oneself unstained from the world. The the very heart of God, because he has placed his image in uh, all of our created beings, uh, cries out for us to to be passionate about those image bearers. And when we fail to do so, if you look in verse verse 14, uh, verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. 
for your hands are full of blood. You know, failure to recognize the image of God in his created beings uh, makes us guilty, makes us culpable. Uh, and we certainly can relate to this. Again, you know, we do not live in a unique time. I mean, we can go through and we can talk about the various ways in which we deface the image of God. Certainly, abortion is, is one of those things. When, when you have a separate being uh, with separate DNA from the mother whose life is taken uh, unwillingly, there is a defacing of an image bearer. There is murder. There's, there's blood on our hands. Now, I, I realize that there are some very difficult, difficult situations where uh, choices have to be made. These are rare, uh, but we want to be sensitive to those. Ethicists sometimes will use the phrase, a world of competing sorrows. Uh, and, and we enter into those at times. Uh, but for the most part, you know, what, what goes on with regards to abortion is a defacing, is an injustice uh, to that image bearer. But it, it goes a lot further than that. Uh, we can talk about it not only sort of prenatally, but we can talk about it when we come to the edge, end of life. Uh, as you know, uh, countries like the Netherlands, uh, states like Oregon uh, have legalized euthanasia. And so for a person who is struggling with dementia or for uh, somebody who is just old and, and maybe feels useless or is deemed useless, uh, it's interesting as these are, are legalized one of, the, uh, one of the reasons why people are choosing euthanasia and it's becoming more and more common is because they feel pressure to relieve the burden on their families. That's kind of moved up. I think 54% of the people uh, who choose euthanasia cite that as one of their top reasons. Uh, but again, these, these are image bearers. Uh, no matter how many... Uh, years that they've lived, no matter how feeble they might be, no matter uh, how their brains uh, may be struggling to keep up, and, and the injustice uh, that is happening in those particular cases. But it, it goes all up and down. You know, as we think about the attitudes that we have uh, towards people that are different than us, whether it be race or whether it be political party, or whether it be sexual orientation, whatever it might be, when we treat these people with less dignity than they deserve uh, as an image bearer of God. So again, Calvin would say that they, they, you might not deem them worthy of dignity or respect, but that's not the issue. The issue is they are inherently worthy of that because we see the image of God in them. Think about the rampant use of pornography in our culture and, and what it says, what we think about the person that is uh, embodied in those pictures. You know, we are, are using them, treating them as less than 
image bearers in those particular situations. You think about bullying situations. You know, I, I know this is a big thing uh, at schools, and as you go to your schools and as you operate in your Snapchats and Instagrams and, you know, all of the different things, you have the uh, opportunity to treat people with dignity or with less than dignity. Uh, and oftentimes we see this played out on campuses and schoolyards over and over and over again. And, and, and God is coming to us and he's saying, value the image bearers, particularly if someone is vulnerable. You know, over and over again, we, we see the, the people of God from the laws that are put in place uh, back in the Torah to the indictments that come from the prophets, uh, the, the, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners, the poor. You know, the, these are the most vulnerable of society, and they are the ones who most need the church the people of God, to see and to value them uh, in their image bearers. And, and we exacerbate this oftentimes like Israel. Not only do we fail to see the image of God in people, but we exacerbate it by, by pretending that everything is okay. Uh, you certainly saw that in Isaiah chapter 1. You know, the, the feasts, the, the religious activity, it, it's going on. I mean, there, there's activism on the part of Israel with regards to its cultic activity and, and going before the Lord. There is a, a, a huge amount of that. They're bringing rivers of oil, Micah 6 says, you know, you're bringing thousands of rams, speaking, you know, coming out of their wealth, using this to try to leverage God's heart. But God says, I am so tired of your feast. It's interesting, you know, that, that language there. We think of God as never slumbering, never sleeping, never growing weary. Uh, but yet he says, uh, these feasts, your new moons, uh, my soul hates, they become a burden to me. I am weary of, of bearing them. You know, God recognizes that their hearts of his people, though they've got all the outside, you know, external religious trappings, their hearts are far from him. And, and there is a grief on the part of the Lord. And we certainly need to be careful of this. Uh, there are lots of ways in which we can become external activists uh, seeking to leverage the heart of God. You know, we can do it through our own expressions of religion. We can do it politically. We can do it uh, by getting involved in a cause and, and going forward. But if we are not seeing the truth of who God is, and we are not motivated by that, God will say, I see all the stuff, but I don't see the heart. So what's the way forward? Like, how, how do we get out of this crisis uh, that, that we are so prone to find ourselves in? And I, and I say that because Nothing is new under the sun. I mean, this is the 8th century BC. We can say it, you know, every century from them. So where we are today, yes, there are many things that we, uh, you know, bemoan and decry. But 
nothing new is under the sun. God's people always are struggling with these things and always move in these directions. What's the way out of this crisis? The most striking thing of this passage has got to be verse 18. So here, here is the picture. We have God's people who are guilty uh, of defacing his image that he has put in the world. Their hands are full of blood. We saw in, in verse, what, 11? Uh, verse 11, verse 15, they're coming before God with these hands that are full of blood. And God says to his people, he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, now we know what he's talking about, right? This grinding of the poor into the dust, uh, this lack of justice for the widows, for the orphans, for this trampling the most vulnerable of society. It is literal blood. It is literal scarlet. It is literal crimson. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What in the world? You know, what, what kind of reason is this? Yeah, this, this doesn't seem reasonable at all. This seems completely unreasonable. This is lunacy. This is a, a calculus that uh, doesn't compute. And yet, this is the very calculus of God. That where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. This is God because, I think it's interesting, in, in verse uh, 11, he says, um, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. This, this word delight, it's translated here, uh, is hapesh in, in the Hebrew. And it comes back again uh, later on in Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 10. And here, you recognize, as some of you will know, that Isaiah 53 is the uh, servant song, and we recognize Jesus, who is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Um, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. In verse 10, it says this, it was the hapesh, the delight of the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. How does God's reasoning work? God's reasoning works in that he provides the justice that we have failed to enact, that we have failed to embody. You know, we bring our offerings before him and he takes no delight in them when our hearts are far from him. But what he does delight in is the perfect sacrifice of his son. When his son goes to the cross and is crushed for our transgressions, when his blood flows in order that we might be made as white as snow, 
That is what brings delight to the Lord. And that is how we begin to understand our our way out of crisis. Like we stand here condemned. We stand here guilty as individuals, as a country, as the church. I mean, we, we stand condemned. But God says there is a deeper reason at work. There is a a calculus that you would know nothing of unless I revealed it to you, and it is this. I I love how Frederick Buechner, who recently passed away, talks about grace, the grace of God meeting uh, the sinfulness of man. He says, the unflagging lunacy of God, the unending seeminess of man, the meeting between them that is always a matter of life and death and usually both. And of course, God's grace comes to us through the death of Jesus that has been flowered into a newness of life and, and a newness of perspective and a, a new motivation for learning to do good, for seeking justice, for correcting oppression, for seeking justice for the fatherless and pleading the widow's cause. Not only do we look at the image of God in man, not only do we look at the heart of God who draws close to the outcast, but now we are motivated and propelled because we have been washed clean by this unreasonable reasonableness of the Lord God who looked at us and said, your hands are full of blood, but you shall be as white as snow. So what is the way forward? I just mentioned to you, verse 17, such a a verse for us as individuals, but us as the church, you know, as as Scotty and Jake and others have have pointed out, uh, overturning this decision is, is significant. Uh, if only because the laws of the land are, are more closely reflecting the moral law that God has given to us. But it's not any type of an end of anything. You know, we, we are called to be the church. We are called to embody justice. We are, in call, we are called to embody compassion and mercy. You know, in the words of Micah that we had, uh, to do justly, to love uh, mercy, the, the translation was kindness. The word there is actually hesed, uh, to, to love the same steadfast love that God loves us with. We are to love other people with that. So again, that, that's, a, that's an immovable love. It's not dependent on whether people love us back. It's not dependent on whether people deserve it or not. Uh, this is the call to seek justice for the fatherless, uh, to, to plead the cause of the widow. Again, all of these vulnerable in our society, this, this is our call. Just a few comments on this to land the plane and, and sort of bring this home. Uh, first, just a few words for you. Learn. Learn to do good. W- what does that mean? Learn, you know, again, we oftentimes will think about it in terms of head knowledge. I've got to go memorize something. I've got to, 
Uh, I've got to uh, get the information in. Well, it certainly starts there, and you know, we talk about that all the time, the importance of knowing the scriptures. Yeah, I, I love going through all of those verses that uh, have been etched on our hearts you know, over the course of the summer and just recalling them. This is how we learn. But learning is also a process. It, it's, it's being formed. It's, it's going forward, recognizing where you fall short, recognizing where you've gone wrong, and, and, and correction. Learning is a lifetime. You have not arrived in your learning. I have not arrived in my learning. Where, wherever you are in life, you are to continue pushing forward, learning to do good, and, and assuming that you have more to go in your 90s, in your 80s, in your 50s. You know, yeah, we all can learn to do good. And if you are a younger person, hallelujah, you've got, you've got time. You know, so press into this. Learn to do good, uh, the prophet says. He says, seek justice. And we've talked about this before. And I recognize there's new faces here, folks visiting. But justice in the scriptures, a uh, couple of things about it. The, the word, there are two main words for justice. There's uh, mishpat and sedekah, which comes from righteousness. And oftentimes, they can be translated either or. So sometimes when you read the word righteousness, you can substitute justice for that or vice versa. And that will, that will help you sort of think about what is being required. The other thing that's important is that justice has both a distributive and a retributive sense. Oftentimes, we only think about it in terms of retributive. You know, something has gone wrong, we need to get justice for that person. Uh, we, we need to make sure that what was taken from them is restored, that type of thing. But, but justice also has this distributive sense in which there, it, is, uh, it is placed on God's people the responsibility to advocate for, uh, to advocate for people, even if they haven't uh, necessarily lost something specifically to advocate for the rights. You see that here, to correct oppression, uh, to, to seek you know, these are, are verbs that, that go forward. And so not only do we have to make sure if somebody has their bread stolen that we replace their loaf of bread, but we have to uh, work to create systems and such that will ensure that they can easily get bread uh, as they go down the line. So both those senses of justice are important. And then the idea of oppression just reminds us that you know, poverty, scripturally, scripturally speaking, and, and these are important in these discussions and as we think about it, uh, poverty is, is usually attributed to, to one of three causes. Uh, one would be calamity. You know, a hurricane, a typhoon, a tsunami hits, wipes out, uh, and, and people who had stuff now have nothing. So calamity has struck we recognize this, we send aid, we, we do all of those things. Uh, secondly, scripturally speaking, oppression. 
and, and this is often speaking of unjust systems that are in place, and, and this is a cause of poverty. And, and scriptures tell us to correct oppression, you know, to be advocates for those that are uh, find themselves poor as a result of this. And then the third reason is laziness, uh, is uh, negligence on the part of the individual. Do you see how uh, the scripture's view of humanity, their view of poverty, is, is very nuanced? Oftentimes our politics focuses on one thing. Well, if people would just take responsibility or if we would just fix certain systems, then everything would be okay. Uh, scripture affirms both of these things, but says it's nuanced. And, and our job as the people of God and as the church is to embody the heart of God towards his image bearer. So what does this look like? Two other things. Uh, one is this. The, you know, we have to remember that we as the church are the church gathered and the church scattered. What do I mean by that? Uh, on the one hand, we, we operate as a local church. And so it's important for us to have ministries, uh, to support programs uh, that, that embody this justice in the community. You know, so when we as a church gets behind something like Grace's Table uh, and we are engaged in uh, connecting with single moms who find themselves struggling and, and we give to our deacons fund uh, as we will do next week and one of our deacons will lead us in a prayer this morning. And we as a church then, uh, church gathered, is, is embodying this call to, to justice and compassion and, and hesed and, and all of these things. But we are also the church scattered. Uh, and so we, we, we get involved in, in so many different places. We embody this justice in, in the ways that we live in our neighborhoods, in the ways that we engage with people in our workplaces. When we get involved in things like foster care and adoption, when we fight against uh, the, the, the un seemly use of women in pornography, when we get involved uh, with regards to promoting uh, solid uh, views of humanity that don't degrade somebody on the basis of race or culture, uh, then we are the church scattered and we are embodying the justice, uh, the compassion that, that God calls us to. So we need to be thinking of both of those things. And part of the challenge here is, first of all, how, how do we, as the church gathered, do this? And how do we support it? We, we support it financially. We support it with time. We, we, uh, we come to the deacons with ideas. And, you know, we, we get involved in our teams and committees. Like, all of the ministries of this church, we don't do it just for ourselves. You know, we, we, we invest in these things, we support these things, we move forward so that we can embody this ministry of justice in the world today. But then we also have to think about it individually, the church scattered. And I think part of the challenge here is every single one of us, every one of us, without exception, you know, should be thinking of how, how do I connect? How, where is it? Now, for some of you, it'll be front lines. 
Others of you, it will be support roles. Uh, it will be education, you know, just learning about things. Uh, prayer, always. But it should be somewhere in our consciousness that, that we are learning to do good. We're seeking justice, correcting oppression. Finally, uh, this is all going to require sacrifice. You know, when we look at Jesus and we look at, you know, this, this, this lunacy, come let us reason together. God, there's nothing reasonable about you accepting me. There's nothing reasonable about that, about you washing me clean. When we think about the sacrifice that our Savior made, it certainly reminds us um, that sacrifice is going to be the way forward. When we embody love in the culture, you know, and, and we put away a triumphalism, we put away bombastic ways of being in the culture, uh, when we embody that, it will be humble. It will be, uh, it will be sacrificial. J.I. Packer Wise, respected theologian tells us this. When the world tells us that everyone has a right to a life that is easy, comfortable, and relatively pain-free, a life that enables us to discover, display, and deploy all the strengths that are latent within us. And that sounds reasonable, right? <laughs> that, that all sounds reasonable. But he says, the world twists the truth right out of shape. That was not the quality of life to which Christ's call led him, nor was it Paul's calling, nor is it what we are called to in the 21st century. For all Christians, the likelihood is rather that as our discipleship continues, as we learn to do good, God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware so that we may learn with Paul that when we are conscious of being weak, then and only then, may we become truly strong in the Lord. And would we want it any other way? Brothers and sisters, there is a tremendous hope in Isaiah. You know, Isaiah had a long ministry. He saw Israel uh, go into exile uh, he, he, he foresaw the return of Israel, and it was all based on this hope that God was the faithful one, that he would never leave or forsake his people, and that no matter how bad things got, God would continue with them. Come now, let us reason together. Though your skins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Learn to do good. Seek justice, uh, correct oppression, seek justice for the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Is not this what it means to know me, says the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are so humbled by your word. We are so We are so speechless, as it were, when we recognize both the call that you have placed on our lives and the mercy and the grace with which you continue to deal with us. Lord, we pray that 
as a church, both the church gathered and the church scattered, that we would think about these things, that we would prayerfully bring them before you, that we would learn from you. Father, we pray that the world would see in us uh, not a bombastic, triumphalistic, uh, we've got all the answers, um, but rather see a people uh, that is credible because of the love they see in us, that is humbly holding forth uh, the truth of God, which truly does give us the best way to live in. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.